Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. Network said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Young. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. Having a plan for your life can be fundamental in achieving any sort of meaningful success. You need to have goals, and you need to motivate yourself to achieve those goals. Of course, there are times when life intrudes on the master plan. Sometimes you don't know what your great purpose is until it smacks you in the face. In 1973, Alana Shepard and her husband Harold were living the good life. Harold owned his own business, and the children attended a prestigious Atlanta private school. But a desperate phone call in the middle of the night changed everything. A mother who suddenly felt powerless inside her neatly ordered world was swept up in a cause, the defining cause of her life. Meet one of the founders of the Shepherd Spinal Center. Alana, welcome to the program. Hope you're doing well this morning. Oh, I am. I am. Thank you. So you were born in, in Iowa. How did you get to Atlanta? <laughs> well, my father was a veterinarian. And after the uh, war, Second World War, he had gone to Sioux City with two other veterinarians to open a serum manufacturing business for hog cholera serum. And they then he came to Atlanta when I was 13 to distribute the serum in this area in the southeast and opened an office here he didn't really like practicing and he certainly didn't like practicing with small animals because of their owners <laughs> so that's how we got to atlanta and then he started working with the university um, in the extension system and worked with people all over the state uh, with their herds and flocks and such so it was a, he had an interesting life but his interesting life was in uh the first world war um, he was a captain and had a remount station and they followed the troops all and set up more remount stations for the horses and mules through France and on into Germany. And at one time, this is uh, kind of interesting. 
and kind of an unknown fact, uh, they had the, the horses would get caught up in the barbed wire and had to be destroyed or they'd break a leg or something like that. At the start of the war or during it, something like 700,000 horses went into the war. At the end, there were only 60,000 left. Mm-hmm. So you can see what was happening. And so he had about two or three hundred guys that were burying these horses after they had to be destroyed or had died. And the Germans were starving when they got into Germany and they had put lime on the horses. Well, the Germans were digging them up and washing the lime off and eating them. And there's a picture in a book that one of his comrades um, did a little history privately published. And there's a picture of the Germans down in the, in the Valley digging up these horses to eat. So my father finally, um, quit putting lime on it and just gave them the horse meat, the horses, and let them butcher them so that they wouldn't starve. It was interesting. Wow. That's... You don't think about that. You... And they did have you mechanized uh, equipment, but mo- there was a lot of horse-drawn stuff in the First World War. Unbelievable. Uh, did your Was your father haunted at all by, by his experience in the war? Uh, did no, he... I don't think so. No. Didn't seem to be anyway. <laughs> and what are your memories of, of growing up, you know, in the – during the war, World War II years, uh, you know, there are so many people who just don't have an appreciation for Oh, I know it. I well remember we were having Sunday dinner uh, when Pearl Harbor happened, and everybody jumped up from the table and ran over to the radio to hear it, and we everybody was just in shock. We had guests or some people were visiting us for dinner that day, and I, I vividly remember that. And then, of course, it was 1943 that we moved to Atlanta. And the war was still going on. So um, I had a cousin who was killed. He was in a bomber uh, going over from England, bombing Germany. And his plane went down. They saw his uh, parachute open, but no no word was ever made of his death. Nobody knew what happened. Um, so that, you know, I w- we weren't close. He lived in Texas. But uh, he had visited us several times just before he was deployed overseas. So I well remember him. And then my father was on alert to, as a reservist, to go back into the war. Well, there weren't that many horses in the Second World War, so they didn't have to, he didn't have to do that. So growing up in the war years uh, in Atlanta, um, what is, what's your defining memory of that time? Because it was, it was scary, and yet you were pulling out of the Depression, and there was the, the sense that the that the whole country was together in this, which is a feeling that a lot of people really couldn't uh, appreciate today. Yeah, I seem to remember rationing of sugar and things like that, and shoes and gasoline too, of course. And uh, I did have access to a car. I mean, I didn't have my own, but I could drive family cars. And I know we only had so much gas, so we didn't just drive recklessly around town, which was probably a good thing. Uh, I went to uh, North Avenue Presbyterian School, which became Westminster, and um, all-girls school. And, of course, there were boys from Boys High who would come by every afternoon in their cars. And the principal, Miss Askew, would shoo them off campus. They had to wait down on the street. (laughs) (laughs) All that. A few of them went off, joined the uh, services early, and... I did know girls a couple of years older than I who dated sailors and that sort of thing. Um, I remember going out to what now is PDK Airport and to the Naval Air Station because they would ask uh, high school seniors or girls in the summertime and back from college 
to come and um, um, go to the parties out there and dance with the, whoever was there. You know, it was very safe environment and and you you didn't go home with anybody except your parents who brought you out there and picked you up later. Uh, maybe you had your own car, rode with another girl, but that's the only memory I have of particular contact. Uh, of course, there were uh, servicemen on leave and we knew so many people whose sons and brothers were in the war. I had a, one friend whose brother was killed at Omaha Beach. And later we went back uh, several years, well, maybe 20 years ago, 15 years ago, Harold and I went to Omaha Beach and through that area um, and tried to find his name because there's a, an office there with all the names and his name was not there. Other than that, you know, we knew people who had a family member killed, certainly. But life kind of went on and, and there was the war effort and you certainly knew that it was going on. Uh, I also remember very vividly being in the backyard. I was raising rabbits <laughs> and my grandmother who lived with us came out and she said, President Roosevelt has just died. And I said, oh, no, he hasn't. <laughs> he was the only president I had really ever known of. Yeah, I was born in 1930. And uh, so he was he was my president all of my life to that point. And I just tried to stand her down and say I didn't believe it. You know, he, he wasn't dead. Well, of course, he was. And I well remember all the publicity over his body being coming back through Atlanta on the train and the musician that played the, the um, music for him. It, it was an um, interesting time, of course. And then, of course, you go right from that tragedy, uh, that, that shock, uh, that sadness, to the uh, uh, jubilation of, of VE Day and then eventually VJ Day. And what are your memories of that? I don't really don't have any in particular. I went on to Stevens College, and of course that was after I graduated at sixteen, so I was pretty young to be going off to school, and I didn't even go look at colleges. My family just said, "Oh, you're going to Stevens." I said, "Fine," and I loved it, and I did go, uh, and was very involved in student government and that sort of thing there. Um, but the you know life kind of went on in a normal way here in Atlanta. And you you grew up in a time when um, there were very you know strict uh, definitions for, for men and women in terms of what they pursued in life. What did you dream about as a as a young girl? <laughs> um, oh, I remember thinking it was so silly, but I remember thinking I would give the first joint of my little finger if I knew who I was going to marry. But of course, I couldn't have known. <laughs> That was ridiculous. No, you were just expected to go to college and then get married and not really have a career. Although I did work for uh, Southern Detectives, um, a dentist friend of my father's. You were a private eye? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> just one summer out between first and now second. Now, you got to have some stories out of that. Come on. <laughs> oh, we were private shoppers for one thing. And the other woman who worked in there, she was a lot. She was a little bit older than I. And she was. Um, definitely older in her thoughts about how she got along in society. <laughs> I was pretty naive. But anyway, we went to this hardware store and everybody was, all the salesmen were almost looking at her and following her around the store. And it was kind of ridiculous. So it was kind of obvious that we were the private shoppers. <laughs> and then I kept the books, but I didn't even have a calculator or an adding machine. And they expected me to do the payrolls and I made a mess of it. <laughs> 
Well, you had a pencil and a piece of paper, right? That's all you needed. Yeah, but math wasn't my best subject. (laughs) (laughs) So how did you meet your husband? I knew everybody knew everybody in high school. There were fraternities and sororities, and there was a dance every Friday and Saturday night. And uh, so you knew people from all the different schools. And my brother went to Marist. I knew people there. And he went to he went to Darlington and then to Boys High. And um, I just, you know, he's just one of the people I knew. I didn't think anything about it. And we really didn't start dating until um, about the time I finished college. And uh, tell me about him. He was a road road contractor and worked long hours to get get it going. They, his father had gone broke with a the um, dam down in Columbus that the Corps of Engineers was building. And there was an underground river that no one knew about. And it took out all the equipment and all the job and they went broke. And it took some years uh, for Congress to pay the the damages because of the undetected um, uh, river. So with nothing, the two younger brothers of six children had to go to work paving roads with broken down equipment. It wasn't much fun. So we popped around from several jobs in North Carolina. And then we were, they had a lot of overseas work for the Bank of America. They built Wheelers Field in Tripoli. And about the time I had twins, we were supposed to go to Wheelers Field to build that air base. And I said, uh-uh, I'm not taking two babies <laughs> to, to Tripoli. And so um, an older brother went back and forth some, but he didn't, he didn't really stay over there. But um, then they made a big success of their paving and bridge building and all that sort of thing. And you're at home. And they also built um, blimp bases in South America. So that's the interesting connection when James got hurt. Um, Harold's older brother had a great friend there who had been, they'd been friends. um, I don't know exactly how, but he was a very influential and very wealthy person. So that turned out to be very fortunate for us later. So you're minding your own business, raising your family, and James, your son, is on a trip surfing, right? What happened? No, he graduated from college, and he and another friend uh, backpacked through Africa, which you can't do, but he did. (laughs) And even out into the Seychelles, uh, where they were body surfing, and came back and uh, then went to Rio and were going to work their way up South America till the money ran out, come back and start going to work for their careers. And uh, as it turned out, when he got to Rio on the beach, that's when the accident happened. So his his trip got cut short, but he'd had a wonderful trip before that. And what happened to him exactly? He was, it, he really had some good memories of how it came about, but he decided to go in because the waves were really good. And it was on a Sunday morning he got in the ocean and a wave crashed him, turned him upside down because the beach had been dredged and there was a shelf there and the shelf went off. And so he ended up in about four feet of water and had realized he couldn't move his arms and push off. So he tried to push off with his legs, he said, and he couldn't. And then he realized he was gonna drown. And so he just had to suck in the water and threw up a couple of times. And he said, that was it, it was very peaceful. Well, he quickly washed up on the beach and the lifesavers walked over and looked at him and turned around and walked off. They figured he's already blue and they figured he's dead. Happens all the time on their beaches and they don't really care. They figure there's nothing to do if you've, if you've done that to yourself, it's, it's all over. So his friends recognized his bathing suit and 
started um, artificial resuscitation, which is that time wasn't the same method they do now. But anyway, they got him back and they took him to the aid station and called the uh, U.S. consulate's office to get a doctor and luckily got hooked up with some of the best that they had, which uh, it wasn't the doctors necessarily, but it was the facilities. And the only place there was a neurosurgeon that day in Rio was the guy who'd come from Sao Paulo. And he was in this tiny little clinic, 21 beds with no screens on the windows. And uh, it just wasn't a very good thing. But anyway, we got the call from the beach. So we packed up and were on a plane to Miami by three mm-hmm. o'clock that afternoon and arrived early the next morning. And um, the boys had 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 the number for our friend Adolfo. And he was there in the airport meeting us as well as the one of the boys. And the other one stayed with James in the hospital. So that began the journey for five weeks in Brazil, trying to do this in Portuguese. And he was on a ventilator. He had they put a camera down because he was bleeding so much from stress ulcers and there were 17 stress ulcers. So they, he ended up having 22 units of blood and the blood supply there was not the very best. So he got hepatitis and uh, it was just one complication after another. And at that time there were no air ambulances. Delta would not take somebody on a ventilator. And so with Herman Talmadge, we arranged to pay for, the medevac team out of New Jersey to come for him. And it was our flight. Um, It arrived and we got to the airport the next morning with him and and the ambulance was there. Well, the flight surgeon had forgotten to get the ambu bag out of the the ambulance. So the ambulance had to go back through nine o'clock traffic to get it. She could not leave without it, even with that well-equipped plane. And we, they would not let us leave the, the vicinity of the plane. They, we were sitting on the on the runway and there was a truck full of soldiers about they looked like they were about 15 years old and they all had automatic weapons and they were guarding us because we had no treaties to land a plane in um, Brazil. And Harold had had to go to the consulate and get permission for this plane to land and Adolfo had helped us there too. He also helped us with um, money issues. We had to pay every two days in cash and at that time there were, weren't good credit cards that had a, um, an association with a bank in another country. So he would go to the bank, Adolfo went down to the bank and he said to the manager, um, give him anything he wants, give him money. When he gets to a million dollars, call me. And he left and they, they did this. And so Harold would leave every two days with wads of money stuck in his pockets. And he said, I figured nobody thought anyone was dumb enough to walk around carrying thousands and thousands of dollars in their pockets <laughs> in the streets of Rio. So nobody bothered him. It was, that was, you know, there were a few things to laugh at, but not many. That's just so, yeah, it was pretty so, so bizarre on so many levels. But I mean, <clears throat> how, do you, how do you deal with, um, on the one pro- well, hand, you're just trying to, to solve the problem, but you, you, you got to be brokenhearted that this has happened to your son. Well, yes, but that you have to kind of put that aside, or at least we did. The main thing was to keep his spirits up and, and hope that the, care would be good. And the nursing care is so bad that the doctors do most of the care. So they would come seven and eight, 10 times a day. And uh, we had a bunch of them and they spoke some English pretty good. A few of them, one resident in particular spoke perfect English. He was a real tall German kid. And then um, there was an Egyptian 
who was the pulmonologist, and he was very good. He spoke good English. The others, there was a little left in the translation. But anyway, we managed, and I knew Spanish. James knew Spanish. He could speak and understand Portuguese. He couldn't speak, but he could hear. And he knew they were saying, you know, he's going to die and all this stuff. And, and <laughs> that was the worst thing for him. So we were trying to keep his spirits up and know that there was some hope or something, but there wasn't very much. And we finally got the flight. But the flight nurse said, I want him at sea level all the way back to Atlanta. Well, that was when the um, energy crunch was going on and gas was at a premium. And the, the pilot said, what? And she said, yes. Um, and so that took a lot more fuel to fly at that level because he had tubes going everywhere and on the ventilator. And so the, the fuel got short and we had to land in Puerto Rico at Rosie Roads and refuel. And they opened the doors on the plane and he said he remembered the, what he was thinking. He was coming off all this, these drugs that had put him in comas. And he said the lines were flashing red and blue that were coming down to him. And he thought that the, he was on a ship and that the sailors had put him in a bucket of ice water where they turned on the air conditioning. I mean, it was bizarre. So we finally, we were almost to Atlanta. We were over Florida and they said, the weather's bad. You can't land in, at Dobbins. You have got to go someplace in Texas to this. Where do you want to go? And we said, how do we know? <laughs> um, finally, we, there was, um, I've forgotten the base, but anyway, they had a good hospital there. So he said, let me, he asked this flight surgeon if he could have five minutes to go up and take a look. He thought he saw a hole in the clouds. And she said, you have five minutes and that's all. So he got up there and there was a hole in the clouds and we got through and we landed at Dobbins and then got to Piedmont and they uh, gave him to Carter Smith Jr., who was a wonderful guy. He was the youngest member of the firm, of uh, the medical group. And they figured, well, if James died, it would be on Carter and not them. They were a little bit older with more prestige, you know. <laughs> it was funny. And Carter's the only one of them left, so he's still a friend. But he, James told him later, he said, you would come in my room with a candy bar, eating a candy bar and drinking a Coke, and I couldn't even drink anything. And he said, it made me so mad that <laughs> he was still on the ventilator and couldn't speak about it. So they, they kind of, he went downhill. He had a lot, of, he had a respiratory arrest and a lot of complications. Got down to about 80 pounds. Well, this was a kid who started out at 175 pounds, very healthy. So that's a big weight loss. But people kept, uh, one man kept coming to us and saying, you got to go out to Denver. There's a hospital there that will do better than this. They know what to do. And they they tried their best and they did a good job. They kept him alive at Piedmont, but they did not know how to do spinal care. So, And, and you discovered we, out of this, basically, that there was no place in Atlanta or really no. the Southeast that was equipped for this. Well, they don't know. None of the doctors had experience in it. I mean, all they do was just be nice to them. And I had a plastic surgeon friend who later told me, if this happened to me, I would immediately have both my legs amputated. That's not what you do. I mean, they had no clue whatsoever. Would have, unless they had training in this and turned out Dr. Apple did have training, which is later down the road. But anyway, so we, Harold went out to Denver just for the day and looked and he came back in the middle of the night and told Harold, I told James, uh, we need to go out there. It's so different. It's just unbelievably different. And uh, so we told him we were leaving and they said, oh, you can't possibly leave. You'll be here six or seven months. We need to give you more blood transfusion, build you up. We said, no, we're going. And then they started coming around and saying, you're, you're right to go. You're right to say that. 
uh, you're doing the right thing. Um, you should you should do that. And we got out there and they began pulling out all the tubes and getting him um, with some feeling of hope and so forth and exercising. And he, he didn't look like very much. He's kind of a bag of bones for sure. So we stayed the first six weeks till they said that they finally thought that he would probably live. And um, we decided to give him his independence. We would only go back every three weeks. And he's very independent. He was very independent. So that was really suited him fine. And I mean, young men who've just started being independent don't want to end up being dependent on their parents. And he wasn't going to be. That wasn't the point. The point was, it was his emotional well-being. So he you understood that psychologically, you had to yes. allow him to yeah. make that leap, right? Exactly. And it was a leap for us. But, you know, you could get on the phone every day. You couldn't um, have FaceTime like you do now, which is so wonderful for our patients, especially with COVID going on. So he walked, He was there. Uh, he was at Piedmont three months, and he was out there five months. He walked out with a leg brace and a crutch. He was an incomplete injury, and he got back function and sensation. He was really a hemiplegic, paralyzed on one side, but with the long leg brace, he could get around. Now, how did it, so, now, now take me, put me in the, in that situation. How did it feel for you to see, you know, a situation where he almost died to see him walk? Well, we were pleased. We were thrilled, you know, when he could even stand. That was a great effort. And we see that today with our, our patients who are an in incomplete injury, or even if they're not, the progress they make and the realization they can live a life with meaning is the whole point. And, and, to, and, to, know, and to know that the, the steps that you took not only saved his life, but allowed him to get to that because you were just, yeah. you're, you're just, you're just two uh, people, uh, parents, you know, without any medical experience who are just trying to deal with, with the situation and, That's right. <laughs> and you literally did what you could to, to save his life and to get him back to that. So there must have been some significant satisfaction that came at that point. Well, there was, of course. And we've got a wonderful picture of him walking out. But we see our patients today take pictures of them walking out or even leaving in their wheelchair uh, or even driving themselves out. I mean, it's just um, everybody's so glad to have gotten back the independence that they're going to get and maybe they're going to get stronger maybe not but um i don't know you just rise to the occasion and we just um put our own feelings aside i guess and and my brother and one of my brothers-in-law came down to rio and brought a whole bunch of pills <laughs> i don't even know what they were and i don't even take aspirin so i i said you can just take these back we're not taking these and we didn't we didn't ever take anything and you know, I guess we were clear-eyed and clear-minded, and my husband was very determined, and he was used to being in charge, and um, I'm sure he was not the easiest parent, but it did fine. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. What did you learn out of yourself? Uh, how did you learn out of that situation about yourself? Well, I was a pretty confident person anyway. Oh, I didn't really have a big change of heart, but I, I did realize that the things that are important are really important, and the other stuff doesn't make any difference, and you don't have to do it anymore. <laughs> so when did you start uh, making the, the mental leap that, okay, we've, we've worked this problem for our son, 
Um, and we need to help solve or at least mitigate a larger well, problem Well, it, it wasn't my idea. Uh, he'd gotten all the therapy he needed. He was as good as he was going to get. It, he didn't need any more. I mean, he could do his own exercises. Just getting around was a lot of, of exercise. But he and two other people who'd been out there had seen people from Florida and from Georgia who were patients, mostly workman's comp. Uh, but there were a lot of them. And they kept saying, well, something needs to be here in Atlanta like that. We ought to start something. And that went around the block a few times. And suddenly, it, somehow it became us that were going to start it. And we knew we needed a doctor. And we asked our friends who were orthopedists and, and surgeons um, if they would be interested. And all of them said, no, no, but you ought to talk to Dr. Apple. You ought to find Dr. Apple. So we called him up and asked him if he would consider being the medical director. And he said, yes, I will, because I know it is needed and it will go. So the four of us were the founders, Harold, James, Dr. Apple, and me. And Dr. Apple said, uh, you do the all this, this, the work of raising the money, I'll do the medical part and we're, we're gonna make this happen. And so we opened with six beds in the least space in a hospital that was not so wonderful. That's since been out of business and torn down, but we had space. And in the three weeks later, we had uh, eight or nine beds. And another week after that, we had 12. I mean, the need was there, but and we had some identification in the medical community because we had so many friends who were doctors and people who, I mean, we knew so many people in Buckhead, like everybody used to know everybody pretty much or lots of people. And the story was already out there. So they realized this was a kid who had nearly lost his life from breaking his neck, but was now walking and that must be something to this. So you had to convince the insurance industry that they knew um, of course, and the medical community knew, but, you know, finally the referrals came. We ended up with 30 beds by the time we got the property on Piedmont to build our own unit, our own hospital. And uh, Harold's friendship with Scott Hudgens was what did it. He owned the property. And Harold said, I want to buy 2020 Peachtree. And he said, oh, what do you want it for? He said, I don't want it for myself. I want it for the hospital. He said, well, that's different. My, my wife and I, have always wanted the best use possible for that property before we sold it. So he said, I'll tell you what, I've offered it to Piedmont for a hundred and, uh, let's see, a million, a million five, and I'll sell it to you for a million. And then at the closing, going up in the elevator, he handed James a check for 200,000. So we got that property for $800,000 because of a friendship. That's I mean, and everything incredible. else has happened just like it. And the, the last minute it's happened. Beaufort Jones was head of the Woodruff Foundation, and he said, we didn't have the money to start. <laughs> we had the property and the design, and he said, go ahead and start, and the money will come. Huh. Well, we didn't know whether he was going to, I guess we thought he would start giving us more money, which he didn't, but he, they have given us money, of course. But um, the money did start to come in. People realized that, that this was the great way, and a lot of people were volunteering um, there, or they had known somebody who'd been paralyzed and hadn't had such a good go of it before we had opened. And, and so, and, and you were out selling this to the community, to people yeah, who had money. And exactly. how did you do that? Well, Harold leaned on everybody in the construction industry and all the road contractors came in with, you know, great big money. They, they believed him. 
and they were all friends and that's that worked and then we knew people who had a lot more than we did because you, you just do when you grow up in a community not everybody has the same amount of money and you certainly know people who are have great resources and we had a friend across the street of Virginia Crawford of Crawford and Company and we were good friends and good neighbors and she was very very supportive I mean people people stepped up and we got it done. <laughs> we couldn't believe it either. Um, when you started seeing these young people, particularly, who would have issues that they would, uh, who would need treatment, um, and they would go from an impossible situation, like your son, to walking again, how did that affect you? I was happy for all of them. I mean, we put together the best thing that's ever been. And like we told that hospital in Denver, don't look back because we're going to pass you. And we did. We left them in the dirt. We're twice their size. We have eyes. We're the only people that have ICU in this setting. We have day program. They don't have day program. And they're the next in line in, this, in the country to be of any size and do a great job. If you have a very small unit of 20 beds, something in a hospital, um, a big house, general hospital, you're not going to get much because the glory boys are the transplant people and the orthopedists and the heart guys, people like that. That's where the money comes in. And, and that's where the hospital supports. There's not a lot of money in rehab so that it doesn't interest um, general hospitals. They have a little rinky dink unit maybe, but that's about it. So they can't justify what we have uh, over, you know, 1700 employ employees um, and all these wonderful programs like 33 employees do recreation therapy. That's the biggest department in the country. It's, and it's the model for everybody. And we share everything we know. Nothing is secret. We're not doing anything secret. Everybody could get better if they wanted to. They just don't. Oh, now, what do you mean by that? I mean, they could have uh, more, they could be more supportive of their units and do a better job and have a day program and keep up with their patients and, have an atmosphere that's uplifting instead of gloom and doom or halfway uplifting. That's what I mean. What's the, if you've ever toured Shepherd, you understand because when you walk in and the doctors from next door say the same thing, when they come through the tunnel, it's a different atmosphere and they realize it immediately. How would you kind of characterize the defining ethos of the place? It is uplifting. It's, it's, of course, it's an artificial uplift. I mean, the whole staff, Everyone speaks to everybody else, whether they're another staff member, whether they're a doctor, whether they're a um, family member or the patients, everybody in the halls is speaking to everyone. It's that. And if you've gone to a hospital, you know that doctors walk down the hall and look at the baseboard. So they won't have to look at you as you pass them. Don't you know that? Absolutely. <laughs> well, that's not what it is at Shepherd, And it's, we're determined to keep that. Um, it's just a cul culture that is unbelievable. Right now, we have six MDs as patients, and they've come from all over the country. All our, our patients have come from every state in the United States and 64 foreign countries. We're not an Atlanta hospital, exactly, because less than half of our patients are from Georgia, and only 25% of those are from the greater Atlanta area. So we are not just a, a hospital here. We have other concerns <laughs> with patients from all over. What was the toughest part of building that facility? Getting referrals and getting the uh, emergency room doctors to understand on uh, other places to 
um, make the referrals or know there's something else. And now all these patient families tell me, you know, I grabbed the doctor by his lapels and I said, where would you go if it were your son? And they say, shepherd, shepherd. <laughs> but then there's some hospitals where the staff has been told, do not refer to anybody else but our own little unit. Well, that's too bad. And they're not serving their patients well when they do that. What do you want the, the, the Shepherd Center to, to say, that, that your legacy? What do you want that to say about uh, you and your husband and, and your son? Oh, I don't care about the legacy. Our name's on the building. That's plenty. <laughs> but uh, the staff knows that I'm going to come back and haunt them if they don't continue to, if they keep, don't continue the, the, the way it is. The, well, I mean, uh, I mean, I mean. Let me ask you. I mean, you you could have retired from this cause a long time ago, but you're still very. I involved. don't get paid. I, I don't, don't get paid. I know, but you're still very involved. So why are you? Why do you keep? Why do you keep pushing? Uh, well, I you, hardly anybody has the opportunity to do what I've had the opportunity to do. You just don't get a chance to do something like this in every life. And I love doing it. I know that I'm making a difference, and I'm going to keep on. And do you ever think back that this, this is a tough one. Um, if James hasn't had that accident, Atlanta wouldn't have this remarkable That's asset. Right. They would not. How do you deal with that, that question? <laughs> I'm just very proud of our staff and everybody who's been part of, of making it better. Um, of course, we're in a huge campaign right now to build a huge apartment tower uh, to give more beds for day program and patients, families from out of town and to build in a, an innovation floor and take the pain center over there and have more room to add 50 more beds. We turn away 250 to 300 people a year who are qualified to come in. And we do give them, we suggest other places they should look at if we can't take them or something is, I mean, you know, it's just too full. And their insurance will not allow them to wait for a bed. Um, it's it's really, it's awful. And we are bordered by poor states who don't transfer their Medicaid or Medicare very well or at all. And that's, that's awful. So we are, our board is committed to uh, scholarship beds or partial scholarship beds um, always. And we can do about a third, but you know, you have to balance. You can't go out of business. And Choa found that out years ago with Scottish Rite. They had free care for anybody and everybody, and you can't do it. You have to have a, some way to be able to pay for those scholarship beds and, and serve people who fall through the cracks. Do you and we've had <clears throat> billionaires and we've had illegal aliens. Well, do you ever tire of the emotional... Um baggage that you that you have to deal with oh no, no no because everybody has the chance to get so much better at shepherd and you're so glad that they're working hard and they do work hard and uh you try to i know that we have i guess 35 different people who deal with their emotions everybody has one person on their team a psychologist and they deal with them immediately if they see somebody's beginning to ditch and doesn't come out of it in a hurry uh, just kind of stays in the dumps. That's not, that's not why they look around the room and there are five other patients right there by them. That they could touch who are working hard. So that doesn't, you don't say I'm not doing this today. I don't feel like getting up or something. It's just, uh, 
I'm so proud of the staff and, and the job. It's exciting. It's exciting to see people uh, who are young enough to play on the sports teams. Uh, we have the only adolescent unit in the country. And we just sent home today um, a 13-year-old from Long Island. And he was, we take 12 and up, and he was, he's been the youngest. And he had a little hard week of there several months, a month ago or so. But he came out of it, and uh, we immediately got him to help me judge a contest that was going on. And uh, he felt very adult. And, you know, you just, it's just fun. It's just fun to see them uh, grow and get better in spite of it and want to talk to people and be outgoing and want to join their community and be as independent as they possibly can be. How I don't can, have any back. How, how can people help you? <laughs> well, well, I don't mean to be raising money on your program. But, Feel uh, free. <laughs> uh, of course they could give to our campaign we're still in the quiet phase but we have done very well and of course we have people like bernie marcus and arthur blank and and the uh, rollins foundation was a surprise they they told us to ask them for 10 million which we did that's bold and they gave us 25 nobody does that wow and they wanted everyone to know because they felt like we were a force here for the care of people with spinal cord and brain injuries and MS all over the country. And they have the Rollins School of Public Health. So this is a, an issue for them. But, you know, Bernie Marcus has said, I want you to do a program for the veterans. They've got PTSD and they're falling through the cracks. The VA isn't doing it. I want you to do it. What do you say when your biggest donor says that to you? Oh, well, we will <laughs> we'll open a unit for that. So he bought us a building on Peachtree Park, and that's where the veterans are in their program to heal and, and heal their concussion injuries and learn how to deal with their PTSD. You really don't cure it, but, you know, funny things set them off, and so they learn to deal with it, and they can come back again and again. It doesn't cost anything. We, uh, it's fully funded. Um, it's just a marvelous program. We've had over 800 of them, and we haven't had a suicide, so... That's saying something. And they stay with us about six weeks in the program. And then they can come back again for tune-ups or when they feel that it's not going well in their life and they're in danger again of committing suicide or whatever. It's, it's amazing. How many people have you helped the last 40-odd years? Oh, my gosh. We don't really know because the first seven years – uh, that other hospital had our records and they didn't really care much about releasing them. So we estimate those numbers, but, um, you know, probably 40 some thousand spinal cord injuries and a lot of brain injuries and probably the same number. And then we have over 4,000 uh, MS patients under treatment. They're mostly outpatients, hardly ever in the hospital. And we have so much research going on. We're committed to that also, but the research for MS, we have had a lot lots of drug trials and they've all been called off early because they were working and the FDA said we'll, we'll suspend this trial it needs to be given to these patients now so those things are getting so much better oh my gosh it's dramatic um, and then our pain center sees people in the community besides just our patients and our share clients so it's it's so busy and it's so exciting and it's um, it's a happy place people will come for a tour will say, I really didn't think I wanted to come. I don't think I can stand it. 
they get over there and they say, but everybody's smiling <laughs> and they are, I mean, they're, they've got friendships. This little boy that left today had his graduation yesterday from the day program. And his family said, we've got names of everybody. We still know all of our friends um, that we're going to keep in touch with. And they're all older than he is, but he still will, will probably keep in touch for a long time. Because what you're really selling is hope, right? Yes. Hope and the fact that you can be part of your own community. And we return 96% to their own community. Nationally, only 75% return to their community. They go to nursing homes and SNFs and places like that. And uh, so we're proud of our of our track record. Well, all those years ago, you were just minding your business as a mom. <laughs> and this cause changed your life how did it how did it change you i don't know that it changed me I, you'd have to ask my friends if i changed i don't think i changed i in, i enjoy my friends i have a lot i have a lot of younger friends of course now or i wouldn't have any many friends at all but um i don't know that i've changed i've i'm very big oh i've uh, one thing that's so stupid, it's unbelievable, but I used to keep the neatest house you've ever heard of. <laughs> you wouldn't want to walk in my closet now. I don't have time to do that. <laughs> and I don't want to anyway. So that's one change. I, you know, things that are important are important. And, and I love being over there. I love talking to the patients and getting to know them and their families. Uh, one of the doctors we have now is from Columbia, Missouri. And that's where I went to college in, at Stevens. Turns out uh, dormitory I lived in the first year has been made into an apartment building and he lives in that apartment building. We lived in the same building in Columbia, Missouri. I mean, I treasure all these connections and so forth. It's, it's just amazing. Well, thank you for, for all you've done for, uh, for patients out there. It, it truly is a, uh, a wonderful thing for Atlanta and for the country. Oh, I have one more thing that you need to know, too. Yeah. And one reason the Rollins Foundation supported it like they did is that we have programs um, on the Internet in bowel care, bladder care, skin care, um, equipment, all that sort of thing. And we now serve oh, over 30 countries all over the world are taking part in those learning sessions. They don't cost anything. So we're spreading the word in countries that have a lot less of a clue of how to take care of patients than they do even in this country. And we're very proud of that. And that program will grow. Thanks to Elaine McGibbony and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You too can become an American achiever.